Tonight's talk is a presentation in conjunction with the exhibition, Required Reading, Reimagining a Colonial Library, on view in the Calderwood Gallery just out beyond. It features a true Boston treasure, the King's Chapel Library. The lecture and the reception afterward are free for our members, made possible through the support of the William Orville Thompson Endowment, which has been generously supported by one of our proprietors, and we are very grateful to him. This uh, lecture series uh, was named for William Thompson uh, during a quite varied career. The, uh, Mr. Thompson found work as a journalist, a lumberjack, the operator of a barge and tug business, and the owner of a statistical service. He chronicled much of his life in poetry. In 1943, he purchased a 300-acre farm in Williamstown, Massachusetts, a property he called High Ridge Farm. In 1969, his obituary in the Boston Globe described him as a reporter, a farmer, and a poet. Perhaps someone uh, with those wide-ranging interests would appreciate the central question of required reading, what is essential knowledge? And perhaps he would have provided some very interesting book selections were he to be with us here today. Tonight, our speaker, Dr. John Booktel, the Athenaeum's curator of rare books and head of special collections, will explain the origins of the King's Chapel Library. He will take us back to the 17th century in England and to a young colony situated right here on Massachusetts Bay, in fact, right under our feet. He will introduce us to the cleric Thomas Bray, who chose the volumes to send across the Atlantic and tell us about how these quite historic leather-bound books that constitute Bray's version of required reading came to be here and with us today. Before John joined the Athenaeum, he served as director of the Booth Family Center for Special Collections at Georgetown University and as curator of the rare books in the Sheridan Libraries at the Johns Hopkins University. He earned his PhD in English with a focus on early modern British literature at the University of Virginia while concurrently acting as curator of the teaching collections at Rare Book School. He teaches, lectures, and publishes on the history of books and printing, the history of libraries, book collecting, and literary patronage and book dedications. I cannot tell you how lucky we here at the Athenaeum are to have this man here with us to share with us his knowledge and to guide us into the future. Please welcome John Booktel. Good evening and welcome. 
Thank you all for coming. If you haven't seen the exhibition yet, I hope that you will take a few moments to go view the show. Um, we're very proud of it. It was uh, a, a group effort, a wonderful collaborative project, and I'm so grateful to be here at the Athenaeum. I love the Athenaeum. I love getting to explore some of the deep history behind our collections. And uh, this, this is a collection I was aware of all the way back when I was a young pup in grad school. Um, Thomas Bray is a, is a fascinating figure and his library building activities are extraordinary. So it's, it's great, great fun and, and, and fascinating to, to dig into that story a bit. Um, so, so thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm greatly honored to have been asked to give this year's William Orville Thompson Endowed Lecture. The endowment was given by a proprietor in memory of the late William Orville Thompson, or W.O.T., as he referred to himself. W.O.T. was passionate about history and current events, and he loved travel. He loved language. He loved writing poetry. There's a great deal of language, but very little poetry among the books in the King's Chapel Library. And most of what is there is in Latin. I can assure you that the, whoops, wrong button, wrong button, the Z's at the foot of the page are merely a printer's convention. <laughs> but 17th century Neo-Latin religious verse is nonetheless pretty heavy stuff. This poem comes from the 1675 Latin works of the Cambridge Platonist Henry Moore. One might suppose upon opening the book to the frontispiece with its portrayal of Moore leaning against a tree or upon turning the page to discover whoop, Wrong button again. I'll get this. Uh, aha, there we go. Um, that's Henry Moore's handwriting in our copy of the book. The author giving the book as a presentation copy to a friend. Again in Latin. But look at those flourishes. Surely, surely we're looking at the work of uh, a sort of a neo or a, a, a proto-romantic, right? But... Uh, even if Dr. Bray had chosen to include selections from Henry Moore's English poet, poems, we would have found works with such titles as Platonical Song of the Soul or Philosophical Poems, equally heavy, weighty stuff. By contrast, most of William Orville Thompson's poems would be classified as light verse. Asking himself the question, is it poetry? W.O.T. once responded with self-effacing humor, very typical of, of his work, that at least it rhymes and has rhythm. Regardless, there are passages that shine, such as this one. There's a trace of color golden in the heart of every man like the sparkling flash beholden in the miner's shallow pan.
no mere flash in the pan, was the Reverend Dr. Bray, Dr. Thomas Bray. With fervor and extraordinary energy, he shone bright as a trailblazer across numerous fields of educational and philanthropic endeavor in a career that spanned half a century, from his ordination in 1681 until his death in 1730. The son of a poor farmer, Bray distinguished himself at his local grammar school and was able to matriculate at All Souls Oxford as a charity scholar, serving his fellow students in order to put himself through school. He never forgot his humble origins or the people who shared their love of learning with him, in part by providing him with access to their books. While he never achieved a higher office than that of a priest in a London parish, he wound up at St. Batulf's in uh, Aldgate. Um, his impact was enormous. At a later point, he would describe himself as a projector upon the account of these designs I am continually forming. Tonight, we will focus our attention on his library projects, but the range of his other designs is remarkable. Part of his genius involved creating societies of like-minded individuals and garnering institutional approval and support for each of his causes. He founded three charitable associations, which all of which outlived him, the Society for Promoting Christian Knowledge, the SPCK, supported Bray in his library's project beginning in 1698, as well as in the distribution of tracts and the establishment of charity schools. Today, the SPCK is the leading Christian publisher in the UK, albeit with a more ecumenical bent than it had when first founded. The Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts, the SPG, took over the missionary aspects of the SPCK's work in 1701. Now known as the USPG, the Society's emphasis today falls on partnering with churches worldwide to champion human rights and social, economic, and environmental justice. The third of Bray's societies came into being in 1723 when a substantial bequest left by uh, one Monsieur Dallon, a uh, royal secretary, 900 pounds, an enormous sum at the time, Monsieur Dallon had been inspired by a conversation with Dr. Bray to designate the interest on the endowment to be used for education of enslaved Africans in the British colonies. The trustees of these funds came to be known as Dr. Bray's Associates. They established schools in locations such as New York, Philadelphia, and uh, various locations in Virginia. They recruited teachers, and they provided books for the students. Whatever we might think of their motives and their methods today, it was an extraordinary effort by the standards of its own time and seems to have had at least some impact on the literary, literacy rates of enslaved Africans in America.
Dr. Bray's other humanitarian interests ranged widely, from efforts at prison reform, to support for charity hospitals, to advocacy for the protection of Protestant minorities in war-torn continental Europe. Dr. Bray's involvement in seeking to alleviate prison conditions led to an introduction to General James Edward Oglethorpe. There is evidence that it was Dr. Bray who suggested to Oglethorpe the idea of creating the Georgia colony as a place to allow debtors and the poor an opportunity for a fresh start. Bray's love of books and his faith in learning were a through line in all these causes. His quest to give back began while he was still a country curate, eager to instruct the young people in his parish in the particulars of the church's teachings. In 1696, he published the first of a planned four-volume work of his lectures on the church catechism. It was designed to help ministers to train their youth. And, and I sort of, it's sort of interesting to imagine Dr. Bray as sort of a, a prototypical youth pastor. To Bray's surprise, the book filled a need and found a market. The edition of 3,000 copies sold out, and it yielded a profit of some 700 pounds, all of which Dr. Bray would sink back into his various charitable causes. It was reprinted several times. This edition, shown on the screen from the King's Chapel Library, includes a wonderful handwritten note on its title page, given to be lent, possibly in Dr. Bray's own handwriting, and it speaks to um, his concern to uh, get good books into the hands of ordinary parishioners. The book's success brought Bray to the attention of the Bishop of London, Henry Compton. The Bishop of London had responsibility for Anglican churches in the colonies, and Compton needed an able representative to send to the Maryland colony, which had only recently come out from under Catholic control. They were making an attempt to um, get the Church of England well established in the colony. Um, by, by all means, including legal means. <laughs> Bray began preparations for his mission. His superiors wanted him to take the degree of Doctor of Divinity to lend authority to his position. This Bray undertook at Maudlin College in 1696 with difficulty. He had to borrow money to afford the fees, and he also sold many of his smaller personal effects. Where'd that 700 pounds go? It was already gone. As the bishop's commissary or agent to Maryland, Bray's duties would include recruiting ministers and overseeing their work. As he began recruiting, uh, interviewing candidates for recruitment, he realized that the kind of men willing to give up the comforts of home for the uncertainties of a frontier existence were not the sort who had the means to buy many books. But Bray was increasingly convinced that being deeply well-versed in all aspects of the faith by means of a sufficient library of well-chosen books would be essential 
to enable the clergy to serve their flocks effectively. He wanted them to be able to counteract poor morals and irreligious living, to combat increasingly popular teachings that threatened Anglican orthodoxy, such as Catholicism, Socinianism, and especially Quakerism. Bray was determined to provide each missionary with a complete set of all necessary books to persuade the right kind of men to serve. He told the bishops he would continue in his task as commissary only if they would support his library scheme. In short order, the bishops agreed. The archbishops of both Canterbury and York, together with five other bishops, subscribed their names to a statement at the end of Bray's first fundraising appeal, a four-page folio flyer that Bray sent to individuals who had subscribed to his other books, as well as to other supporters. It was part of a massive fundraising appeal with the bishop's blessing. The bishops wrote that we look upon this design as what will very much tend to propagate Christian knowledge in the Indies, being it will, in all likelihood, invite some of the more studious and virtuous persons out of the universities to undertake the ministry in those parts, and will be a means of rendering them useful when they are there. And therefore, as we shall contribute cheerfully towards promoting of these parochial libraries, so we hope that many pious persons will be found who, out of love to religion and learning, will also contribute thereunto. That's how fundraising appeals sounded in 1698. In 1696. Dr. Bray began compiling several best book lists along with proposed locations, rules, and logistics for libraries throughout the colonies, as well as in parish churches throughout England. These included a short promotional piece, the essay towards promoting all necessary and useful knowledge, both divine and human, in all the parts of His Majesty's dominions, both at home and abroad. And a much longer catalog, Bibliotheca Parochialis, which provides an annotated bibliography carefully arranged by subject of all the best authors in all the best editions for an Anglican minister's library. I love the subtitle. A scheme of such theological heads, both general and particular, as are more peculiarly requisite to be well studied by every pastor of a parish. The shorter piece, the essay, begins with Bray's rationale for supplying all sorts of knowledge, not only theological, that people might learn more about both God and themselves, but also in various other branches of learning. For Bray, history is useful as a means of learning from others' fates so we may form to ourselves most excellent rules for the conduct of human life. Bray partakes of the mercantilist spirit of his age with regard to the value of voyages and travels, from which readers can discover the commodities of foreign countries to the great enriching of our own.
the Protestant notion that both body and soul were created good by God informs Bray's perspective on certain kinds of practical books. By an insight into nature, gardening, agriculture, etc., all sorts of, of persons will learn how to ameliorate their condition and manner of living whilst here on earth. He concludes, and if there may be added hereafter to our libraries the best authors in mathematics, physic, that's medicine, and law, there will be no means of wanting, even in the most uncultivated parts of this kingdom, to render the thinking, reading, and the best part of the inhabitants thereof both intellectually, morally, and civilly, as well as divinely, happy. I hope the doctors and lawyers in the room are taking note. <laughs> Bray's plans included establishing three types of library in the colonies, larger centrally located provincial libraries that would serve a large geographic area, smaller localized parochial libraries for the use of the ministers of individual parish churches, and layman's libraries, small collections from which parishioners could borrow. He outlined a parallel structure for the libraries back home in England, but with some modifications. For example, he wanted to create larger, centrally located collections in market towns and deaneries, and he proposed to open them to the use of the gentry, whether gentlemen or ladies, and he intended to open them to the gentry by subscription. So, like the Athenaeum, uh, you would pay a fee to be able to take out books. Bray outlined proposed rules for the operation of these regional English libraries. He seems to have imagined local ministers or schoolmasters taking on the role of librarian with bishops and um, archdeacons taking on responsibility for annual checkups on the state of the collections. He suggested lending periods that would allow borrowers a month for a folio for a great big book, a fortnight for a quarto, a medium-sized book, and a week for an octavo. And imagine a situation in which a lending library is being described to you as something that's a new idea. Bray supplies reasons for the advantages of establishing lending libraries. For one thing, the limits of the loan period would encourage timely reading. It would have this good effect, he writes, that a book will be read over with speed, and care, which, if one's own, might lie in a study without being quickly or carefully perused, upon presumption that, being one's own, it may at any time be read. And here's a rationale for libraries that I bet most of us haven't thought about, unless you happen to work for a publishing firm. If it could be brought about by any means that we might have 400, well, let's see if I've got, I've got this, uh, yes, I do, it's, uh, yes. Um, if it could be brought about by any means that we might have 400 lending libraries fixed throughout the kingdom, it would be a sufficient encouragement 
for the learned men of our universities to undertake the giving us some more such editions of the fathers and other ancient writers as would lead to a certain sale of 400 books. So you, you build 400 libraries and you're guaranteed that 400 copies will sell. This increase in publishing activity might be able to employ our own papermakers, stationers, printers, bookbinders, booksellers here at home to the maintaining of many thousand persons among us. More mercantilist economic policy, or theory perhaps, and with a dose of nationalism thrown in. But who can resist the idea? Build libraries, support local jobs, Bray directed that these libraries would be made up in such boxes or book presses with shelves in them and locks and doors to them, as will serve both to preserve them in the carriage down and in the place where they shall be deposited for the public benefit. And being kept in such movable repositories, they can at any time be removed to any other part of the deanery. This is one of a handful of examples that still survive in English parish, uh, English, in, in English parish churches. This one was sent to Preston in Essex and is now preserved in the Canterbury Cathedral Library. The white paint and the lettering were probably added locally. And while we, we have actually used this one as the model for the reproduction in our exhibition, if you haven't seen it, it's in the sitting room on the way to the children's library, um, the book presses that were sent to Boston were probably, in fact, unpainted. Bray had six of them made for Boston at 10 shillings apiece. And uh, a, a sort of a, a side note about the book presses it's interesting to contemplate the fact that um, with the handles on the sides, and here you can, you can see the handles there and, and the shelves and the books inside, um, this became a natural means of protecting the books while they were in transit. The Earl of Bellamont, who undertook to deliver the Bray libraries to both New York and to Boston, um, as he took up his position as the new royal governor of New York and New England, um, took a side trip into the Caribbean because he had fallen in with pirates. Um, uh, and um, and it, uh, it turned out that they weren't such a good lot to be involved with financially, interta intertwined, intertangled. Um, and so the Earl of Bellamont uh, uh, gave chase to the leading pirate. I, was it Captain Kidd? I, I, my, my brain just uh, skipped a beat. Um, it, I think it was Captain Kidd um, who, who uh, uh, had escaped from New York. And, um, and uh, so, so these books were still in the hold of the ship all the way down, all the way back up. And, uh, and, and yet they, they made it. They were delivered intact. And I think it's thanks to these book presses. There's another great story that Dr. Bray relates in his account books where um, he's getting ready to 
send the um, to 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 send the books down three flights of narrow winding stairs to uh, be picked up by the Earl of Bellamont's servants to be taken aboard ship, and um, he very carefully relates, and this is in an account book where he's telling this story, that he paid so much money to have the books carried by the porters down three narrow sets of winding stairs and then back up again and then back down again because the Earl of Bellamont's servants hadn't been ready and they, he had to take them back up, keep them safe, and then send them back down three days later. In his account books, another aside, Bray is just, he's remarkable in his punctiliousness because he, he wants his benefactors to know that he's spending their money properly. So, um, no, he wasn't overpaying the porters. He had to pay them that much money to carry them up and back and up and back. Um, so, so a lot of fun. Um, the locks on the book presses were intended to protect the collections from loss or, in Bray's term, embezzlement. I love his use of that term. We started to do a little bit of etymological research on that to see what, how common that was as a term for theft. It, it seems to be a, a bit unusual. Actually, it seems to be quite unusual. Um, maybe we'll get a little article out of it at some point. Um, the, the other protective device that Bray used was stamping the covers of the books. So every volume bore their royal patron's name on the upper cover, even though William III, in fact, gave no money to the project. Um, Princess Anne, who would later become Queen Anne, gave 44 pounds, and the first collection that Bray sent out was the collection to Annapolis, and Annapolis was named for her, um, which also became the largest collection that he built. Um, on the lower cover of the book is the location to which the book belonged. So in 1698, all of the books that came to Boston bore on their lower covers De Biblioteca de Boston from the Library of Boston. In subsequent shipments of books, Bray converted the lettering on the covers to English, and the uh, royal patron's name no longer appeared, belonging to Ye Library, the Library of Boston in New England. And this, it's sort of interesting now, looking back, trying to figure out which book is which and when did they come in. You can tell the 1698 books in the King's Chapel Library from the books that came in 1701 or later by the cover stamps. In the event, Bray's idealistic library in every town would not be fully realized until the mid-19th century free public library movement. But he did succeed in raising an enormous amount of money and establishing a surprisingly large number of collections. His account ledger for 1695 to 1699 records 2,483 pounds and 15 shillings in donations, 
with detailed documentation for the sources. Here, are, here is the list of benefactors from his account books. His accounts are preserved in, uh, in archives in the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Um, and here are the ladies with the Princess of Denmark, who would later become uh, Queen Anne, the Countess of Pembroke. So, so we're going from royals to uh, people at the, the level of Earl, um, and, and then Mrs. Elizabeth Barclay, uh, Madame Tillotson, who must be the, uh, the, the spouse of the uh, Bishop Tillotson, John Tillotson. Um, and, uh, and the amounts go steadily down, 44 pounds from Anne, 5 pounds, 10 shillings from the Countess of Pembroke, uh, 5 pounds from Elizabeth Barclay. And there are the totals. Uh, ladies gave 124 pounds, lords gave 262 pounds, not to be outdone by the ladies. Um, knights and gentlemen gave 476 pounds. Bishops, deans, divines, parish priests, um, lawyers and physicians uh, didn't do quite as well as the divines. 12 pounds versus 161. Merchants and tradesmen, um, companies and the Society for Pro Propagating Christian Knowledge, which uh, was Bray's own um, uh, philanthropic, philanthropic venture. A lot of money. Extremely conscientious, Bray carefully noted exactly how much money he spent on books. 1,772 pounds, 13 shillings, and sixpence for colonial libraries overall. Bray established larger provincial libraries in Annapolis, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Charleston, Bath, North Carolina, which is a small town now, but it was the first settlement then, and St. George's, Bermuda. Annapolis received the largest collection with over a thousand volumes. There were only 221 volumes by comparison in the Boston collection. And that was no doubt in part owing to Bray's role as commissary for Maryland. As of 1699, he had sent 36 libraries to North America, several to Bermuda and to various locations in the Caribbean, and one each to Cape Corso Castle in Africa on the coast and to Bengal. The books he sent to Boston in 1697, which arrived here in 1698, were valued at 99 pounds and 10 shillings. For comparison's sake, that's about the same amount as the annual salary of the minister of King's Chapel at that time. Not anymore, I suspect. Other than the King's Chapel Library here at the Boston Athenaeum, only two of the other collections survive in substantial numbers. The Philadelphia collection was housed at Christchurch into the 1960s when it finally made its way to the Library Company of Philadelphia. The Annapolis Library has suffered from the vagaries of time. I think there was something like 400 odd volumes of the thousand that uh, originally um, comprised it, but a substantial chunk of it is held by St. John's College in Annapolis still. 
Um, and we've got one from the Bibliotheca Annapolitana and one for the Library of Philadelphia there. Scholars have long assumed that no books survived at all from the Bray Library at Charleston, but this summer I corresponded with my counterparts at the Athenaeum's sister library, the Library Society of Charleston, and their conservator was able to put his hands on this book. A little worse for the wear, but there's no question but that it is a Bray book. To conclude, I want to present for the first time on the public stage the latest results of my researches into the King's Chapel collection. And here's the numbers for you. Okay, you, you asked for something that was dry as dust. I'm going to give it to you. Um, Bray sent 183 titles in 221 volumes in 1698. I have gone very, very carefully through Dr. Bray's own list of the books he sent. Uh, that's the list on the left. I've collated it with the list on the right, which is in the archives of King's Chapel at Maryland, uh, Massachusetts Historical. And, um, and there are discrepan discrepancies between the two lists. Bray says in his account books for binding books, for having the covers letter, lettered, that he had 221 volumes lettered. And it took a lot of teasing out to figure out um, how many volumes exactly for which title, um, what the discrepancies were, whether a certain book was the same as the book that's on the shelf here today. Um, this is the sort of stuff that um, gets libraries, librarians excited and nobody else, but I had so much fun doing this. Um, so 221 volumes. Um, and there we see the Biblia, Glotta, the, the Biblia Polyglotta, six volumes folio. It, the first volume is on display in the exhibition at six pounds and ten shillings, zero pence. That was the single most expensive book in the entire King's Chapel library. Um, Bray added 13 more volumes in 1701 and he sent six volumes at some point between 1702 and 1704 for a total of 206 titles in 240 volumes. Inquiring minds want to know. Also in the King's Chapel collection are 49 documented volumes that have to have been added later, plus a copy of the great Baskerville Bible that is still held by the church. Um, and among these 49 volumes are some of the most interesting books in the collection. The 1666 edition of Sir Walter Raleigh's History of the World, which you want to have been a book that Dr. Bray sent, was added later. Um, the only incunable in the collection, printed in 1485, that's just 30-odd years after Gutenberg uh, printed his Bible, um, that book has to have come after Bray. Scholars have wanted it to be a book sent by Bray, the late, great incunabulist um, uh, Margaret Stilwell actually puts it into her bibliography, uh, her census of incunables in American libraries, 
And she says, this might be the earliest surviving incunable in an American library because Dr. Bray sent it in 1698. Um, but we now know for sure it didn't come that early and it wasn't sent by Dr. Bray. She also claims that King William gave the book. And of course, we now know that King William uh, had nothing to do but putting his names on the cover of the books. So, um, so the total number of documentable volumes in the original King's Chapel Library would have been 290 volumes. Um, of course, some volumes had strayed by the time they got here to the Athenaeum. They uh, were put on deposit here in 1823. And um, before that, they had been put on deposit in uh, a short-lived institution called the Theological Library of Boston um, in 1807. Um, and various, they, it seems that more books went astray during that short span when all the ministers had access to the books um, than uh, at any other time. And in fact, um, some of the books which have since returned to the collection through the, uh, the Garys of the book trade um, were sold at, at, uh, at auction in the early 19th century at, at the sale of the personal library of, Arch, uh, of uh, Bishop Samuel Parker. So um, I won't go into this because uh, this is, this is uh, bad PowerPoint 101, um, but uh, if you are interested, we've worked out uh, sort of a summary from Dr. Bray's list of his subject classifications. So the Holy Scriptures, Fathers and Ancient Writers, Discourses Apologetical for the Authority of the Scriptures and the Truth of it, the Truth of Christianity, Bodies of Divinity, that's systematic theology today, um, on the general doctrine of the covenant of grace, on the creed, which would be specifically on the teachings of the Church of England, on moral laws and Christian duties, of repentance and mortification, of the divine assistance, which is prayer and the sacraments. These are what, uh, what Protestants would call the means of grace. Um, sermons which would be used as a model by the, by the minister. Ministerial directories with the lives of eminent divines, controversial titles, that's the uh, anti-Catholic books, the anti-separatist books, the anti-Quaker books. Um, humanity, namely ethics and economics. And this is divided into polity and law, history and its appendages, philology, uh, physiology, anatomy, chirurgery, that's surgery, and medicine, mathematics and trade, grammars and lexicons, rhetoric, logic, poetry, and miscellanies. And interestingly enough, there are blank pages for most of these in Bray's account. He sent um, two dictionaries. He sent no works of rhetoric, no works of logic, no poetry, as we've discussed, except, uh, except as it happens to show up at the ends of various books. So um, just to give you, uh, and I, I am wrapping up now, um, but here's, here's a quick hint of, again, some of the collation that one had to do to figure out how these books made their journeys through time. This is the catalog of books in the Theological Library of Boston, printed in 1808. 
at the bottom of each page, halfway down there's a, a, a rule dividing the page, and the King's Chapel books are in the bottom half of the page, except when they're not. And um, here, the, the third entry on page 12, the Christian Monitor, um, the 20th edition of 1696, bound with Wake's Preparations for Death, um, that is the exact edition in the King's Chapel Library with a Day Bibliotheca, Day Boston cover. So we know that that book has to have been, uh, applying Occam's razor to this problem, that has to have been um, the King's Chapel copy, but it had gotten mixed up with other books. And then, um, to make matters yet more interesting, um, in 1823, my predecessor here compiled a long list of uh, the collection with much more detail, but it's only the books that survived at that point. Um, and he actually gives us the imprints and the dates, and in some cases, the full titles. Um, and in the margins, there are handwritten shelf marks for where the books, what bookcase and what shelf the books were shelved on in the Athenaeum's collections. They got dispersed, they got put in different places. And thanks to this list and those shelf marks, I have been able to reunite three books with the King's Chapel Library um, that were previously thought lost. Um, one of these is a 16th century edition of Pliny, which is sort of a fun thing to have discovered. Um, and, uh, and, and the others, there, there's an edition of Second Clement and an edition of Moïse Amiros Irenicon, which is on display in the exhibition. So, of the 221 volumes Bray sent to Boston in 1698, 169 are now on the shelves of the Athenaeum. Two more survive elsewhere, one at Boston Public and one in private hands. That one we've borrowed, it's on display in the show. 17 of the 19 volumes Bray sent between 1701 and 1704 still survive, all at the Athenaeum. So, 188 volumes that Bray sent to Boston still survive. That's a 78% survival rate for the core of the collection. 149 of these are still in their original bindings, or at least the remnants of those bindings in some cases. Of the 50 documented volumes added to King's Chapel Library after Bray, 43 remain at the Athenaeum, and two more are held by other special collections, one at Allegheny College, there's a story there, but I'll tell it to you another day. And the other is at General Theological Seminary in New York. So from a collection that once totaled 290 volumes, 233 volumes survive today, of which 229 volumes from the King's Chapel collection are preserved at the Athenaeum. And now a very brief postscript. We started with poetry, so we'll end with poetry, um, or at least the source of poetry. One of the great pleasures of investigating a collection like this in so much detail, getting to crack open, crack open the books um, one after another, is the little discoveries one makes. And I've made a lot. These are two of my favorites. Here on the front free end paper of this little octavo, um, someone has written 
Fermet my love. This is one of two hidden love stories in the King's Chapel Library. The other one, uh, and we don't know who Fermet was, and we don't know who uh, her lover was. And the other is that 1485 incunable, which we now know couldn't have been sent by Dr. Bray in 1698. But if one goes deep into the book, it's more than two-thirds of the way in, there is a um, marginal annotation um, written crosswise, Ami Ruhama Corlett is to have Anne Glover to be his wife. Another love story. And with a name like Ami Ruhama, surely this guy is identifiable. And indeed he is. He was the son of Elijah Corlett, who was the schoolmaster in Cambridge, Mass starting in about 1642. We don't know when Ami Ruhama was born, but it was probably um, shortly after they arrived in America. And, uh, and he is known to have graduated, he was graduated from Harvard in 1670. And he died in 1679. We have not found a record of a marriage, although I have put him circumstantially um, in Dorchester at the same time as a teenage girl named Anne Glover was there. Um, so maybe they knew each other, um, but we don't know if they ever got married. Because he died in 1679, we now know that this incunable has to have been in America prior to 1679 and might be back in the running as the earliest American incunable. So um, it's, a, it's a great joy to be able to work with a collection like this to make little, if, uh, if, if meaningful, discoveries and then to get to share them with you all. I, I hope you've enjoyed it.